Camp Wild. As the two, 22 men left on Elephant Island watched the James Care disappear among the ice on April 24th, most of them felt an overwhelming gloom begin to settle. They had no illusions about Shackleton's chances, but they could not stand brooding in this chilly rain. Wild, in charge, would not let them fall into helplessness and despair. That would have been the same as admitting they were doomed. Their new commander decided that their first priority was shelter. Their tents had been lashed to ribbons by the violent wind, and they were all suffering from exposure. Some of the men were useless for work. Rickinson had suffered a heart attack, and Blackborough could not walk. Some of the others were in a stupor of exhaustion and could hardly stand. So, weakened by their ordeal and suffering from frostbite, the rest of the crew began constructing a hut with the only materials available. They collected rocks and built walls four feet high, and then turned the docker and the wills over to form a roof. Over the top went one of the last remaining sails, lashed down and secured with more rocks. If they had been rested and strong, they could have built their shelter in an hour. As it was, it took them nearly a day. When it was done, the men took their sodden sleeping bags and crawled into their new hut. The seats of the upside-down boats formed a second story inside, and some of the crew installed themselves up there. Inside it was dark and only slightly warmer than outside. Wind constantly found its way through the chinks in the rock walls, forcing in snow. At first, when they tried to cook inside with one of the blubber stoves, the oily smoke nearly suffocated the men. But Kerr took the metal lining from one of the cases of biscuits and fashioned a chimney of sorts. It didn't draw out all the smoke, but it was some improvement. Occasionally, a gust of wind swooped down through the vent and forced a cloud of choking blubber smoke into the cramped space, driving the men outside to gasp for air. Soon, everyone and everything inside was covered with a layer of greasy soot, but the stove provided much-needed warmth, and the men were beyond caring how dirty they were. A few of them made seal oil lamps, which gave a weak light that was just barely enough for reading. Outside, the weather grew worse. Gale winds blew snow from the peaks of Elephant Island and drifted it high against the sides of the hut. On calm days, the island was enveloped in cold, wet mist, and the offshore ice crowded against the rocky beach. May brought blizzards so severe that Wild was afraid their hut would be smashed by the sheets of ice that the wind wrenched from the cliffs. When the weather permitted, the crew kept busy catching penguins, which were numerous and noisy in the nearby rookery. From time to time, a seal hum lumbered onto the rocky shore and was quickly killed. The glacier that hung from the cliffs and their backs was their reservoir of water. Chipping ice and bringing it inside to melt on the stove was a critical job. But otherwise, there was nothing they could actually do to improve their circumstances. They just had to wait for Shackleton's return. At first, the men had speculated about how soon they could possibly expect a rescue ship. Nobody ever stepped outside the hut without a casting a quick look seaward. But as the weeks dragged on, and the winter locked up the ocean around Elephant Island, they knew they were stuck until spring. Inside the hut, life went on. Wild was lenient with the men, knowing that being too strict would make their hard life even more bearable, unbearable. Dr. Macklin and Dr. McElroy were kept busy with teeth that needed pulling, infections that needed treatment, saltwater sores that needed attention. The most important medical task that faced them was Blackborough's frostbitten toes. His right foot recovered, but on his left foot, gangrene had set in the toes. 
McElroy kept an eye on the condition, waiting until it was clear that the gangrene would not spread and that a scar of new tissue had grown between the rotten toes and the rest of Blackborough's foot. Then it was time to operate. The hush pot was cleaned and scoured, filled with ice to melt, and once the water was boiling, the surgical instruments were sterilized. All the seal oil lamps were lit, making the hut as bright as possible, and the patient was laid on an operating table of packing crates. Macklin uncorked a bottle of chloroform and dampened some gauze with it. Breathe deep, he told Blackborough, as he held it over the young man's McElroy took the scalpel from the boiling water and began cutting away the toes. One by one, they dropped into a tin can with a dull plink, and the sur surgeon then began sewing up the wound. The whole operation took just under an hour. Aside from medical procedures, life in the hut was uneventful. The men took turns reading the few books they had left. They rolled cigarettes of dried grass and pages of the encyclopedia. They mended their clothes by lamplight. They marked the days as they dragged on by. And on Jan June 22nd, they celebrated Midwinter's Day again, although not as comfortably as the last year's party on board Endurance. They threw a little bit of everything from the dwindling food stores in the hush pot for dinner and had a round of singing to Hussey's banjo. Kerr gave an encore performance of Spagoni the Toreador for old time's sake, but the greatest applause of the evening went to James, who composed a song he performed for the occasion. My name is Frankie Wilde, oh, my hut's on Elephant Isle. The wall's without a single brick, the roof's without a tile. But nevertheless, you must confess, for many and many a mile, it's the most palatial dwelling place you'll find on Elephant Isle. One ritual the men looked forward to was hearing a recipe from a small paperback cookbook that Marston had. Each night he read one recipe aloud to the crew, and at the end of the recitation, the men spent hours discussing the recipe comparing it to others they had known, reminiscing about meals they had enjoyed back home. Food had become an obsession with them. Each man had a daily sugar ration of three lumps, but most of them willingly put on one lump a day in the sugar pool. At the end of seven days, the man whose turn it was got all the sugar at once. Food was traded to get out of chores. No one liked going outside in the cold to get frozen meat for the hush pot. But bartering a penguin steak could usually get a man out of the job. There was always someone willing to take the extra chore for the extra food. Clark was so fed up with the daily diet of penguin hush that he began searching the shore for anything else that could be eaten. Occasionally he found limpets, a kind of mollusk, and an edible variety of seaweed to add to the pot. Some of the men worried that the penguins would all disappear one day, migrating off the island that the men had begun to call Helifan Island. The penguins did not disappear. They seemed to, to be stuck on Elephant Island along with the men. As the weeks lengthened the months of captivity, the men could not help feeling twinges of despair. But every morning, the ever-optimistic Wild rolled up his sleeping bag and said to the men, Get your things ready, boys. The boss may come today. Well, today finally came on August 30th, more than four months after the James, James Caird had sailed away. Marsden, walking along the beach, spotted the smoke from a ship's funnel. Ship ho! he cried hoarsely, running to the hut. One by one, the men emerged from the shelter, straining to see. Hurriedly, they ignited a signal fire with dried grass and seal blubber. They dragged their remaining stores and gear to the beach, waving their arms and shouting to the ship. It was a Chilean steamer, the Yelko. 
The vessel stopped, and a boat was lowered over the side. I felt jolly near blubbin' for a bit, Wilde said later, and I could not speak for several minutes. He had recognized the boss, Worsley, and Crean were at his side. As soon as the boat got within shouting distance, Shacklin called out, Are all well? Yes, someone shouted back. Are you all well? Don't we look all right now that we've washed? The boss replied. The men on the beach were laughing and hugging one another. And as soon as the boat was grounded, Shackleton ordered a hasty departure. We knew you'd come back, one of the men said to him. As the boss said later, it was the highest compliment he had ever been paid. He had been trying to desperately for four months to get a rescue ship to Elephant Island. Each time, the winter ice had turned him back, and each time he had been forced to return to South America, not knowing if his men were alive or dead. But he'd finally arrived to take them home. And they had all survived. On each of his three expeditions to explore the Antarctic, Shackleton had failed in his mission. And yet what he and his crew did succeed in doing in 1915 to 1916 was one of the most incredible feats of survival ever recorded. Every stage of their journey seemed more remarkable than the last. From every stage, sorry, from January 1915, when Endurance was trapped in the ice during its helpless drift through the Weddell Sea and its destruction in October, to the crew's long, miserable months of camping on the ice, the boss had held his men together under terrible conditions. Their three-boat passage in April 1916 to Elephant Island was accomplished in spite of enormous odds. The voyage of the James cared over 800 miles of winter ocean rivals any small boat journey in history. Shackleton's trek across the unmapped peaks of South Georgia was the first in that hostile mountain range, and the survival of the crew in their hut on Elephant Island over one Antarctic winter is almost too much to believe. And yet, it all happened. Shackleton brought them all home. Epilogue World War I was still raging when the Icemen returned to England. Almost to a man, they joined their countrymen at war. Sadly, after surviving their ordeal in the Antarctic, several of them were killed in action. Among them, McCarthy and Cheatham, two of the most cheerful and well-liked members of the whole group. With his cold-weather experience, Shacklin was given command of a unit in North Russia. He took Worsley, Hussey, and Macklin with him. And at the end of the war, life returned to normal and Shacklin began a world tour, speaking to audiences in big cities and outback villages about Endurance's doomed voyage. He had accomplished one of the most spectacular feats of survival ever recorded, and he was celebrated on every continent. And yet, as always, it was the southern continent that called him. He had never been comfortable in civilization. He yearned for the frozen south again. In 1921, he gathered a crew together to return to the Antarctic on the quest. Their goal for this voyage was to circumnavigate the continent and map all the islands that were still uncharted. At his side were Frank Wilde, Alexander Macklin, Frank Worsley, James McElroy, Leonard Hussey, Charles Green, Thomas McLeod, and A.J. Kerr. They sailed for the south, but Shackleton's many years of exploration had finally broken his health. As the quest leaped forward over the waves, he began to look very sick. Macklin and McElroy, the doctors, tried to give him to get him to slow down, but he was obstinate. At port in Rio de Janeiro, the boss suffered a heart attack and took to his bed. But he would not go home. The ship kept on south until it reached South Georgia Island. 
On January 5, 1922, the Quest sailed into Gripviken Harbor and dropped anchor. As always, the air was filled with the smell of rotting whale carcasses and the sound of elephant seals bellowing and belching on the beach. Late in the night, with the summer twilight still brightening the sky, Dr. Macklin was called to Shacklin's cabin. Shacklin had another heart attack. Sorry, had had another heart attack. You'll have to change your way of life, boss, Macklin said. You're always wanting me to give up things. What is it I ought to give up? The one thing he had truly to give up was the Antarctic, and that he could not do. He died a few minutes after Macklin came to him. He was buried sat there on South Georgia Island. Here's to the long white road that beckons, the climb that baffles, the risk that nerves, and here's to the merry heart that reckons, the rough with the smooth and never swerves. From a New Zealand school song, one of Shackleton's favorites. The End